Outstanding, like a farmer in his field. Well, if that isn't some juicy content. Indeed. Circle gets the square. I'm going to pull some fast gotcha questions. Carry on, James. Carry on. You know what, Craig? That's a good call. Something's wrong because my mind is spinning. All right. It is another edition of the Channel Futures podcast, Coffee with Craig and James. I am the editorial director of Channel Futures, Craig Galbraith. Joining me, as always, they call him Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson. Our news editor, James Anderson. James, how are you? Well, 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 Craig. I'm doing well. How about you? Well, it's getting warm here in Arizona, as you know from a former resident, as uh, we approach the end of May. But, uh, you know, we're used to it down here. Yeah, you know, you're you're a trooper, Craig. You know, just uh, three months of misery ahead for you, and then uh, it's, <laughs> it's going to get better. How are you enjoying the uh, Chicago spring? Uh, it's not bad. Uh, uh, we've gotten some more rain lately, but uh, I, I think it's going to be a lovely June. Yeah, it is nice there in June. So how's everyone doing over there, Craig? Uh, how's the wife? Uh, how's the dog? In that order, obviously, of importance. Oh, well, that's uh, so nice of you to ask. Uh, my wife is doing well. She has the luxury, so to speak, of going into the office, so she doesn't have to be around me for uh, at least 10 hours of the day or so. Louie the dog is uh, doing pretty well. He wasn't uh, too excited to go back into his room where I've got him corralled uh, during this podcast, so he's not jumping all over me. And But uh, yeah, thanks for asking. They're both doing well. How about you? But, uh, how are you doing with the roommates? No, they're all right. I just, man, they're not self-aware, you know? Uh, it's a small house, so whenever I do these podcast calls or these conference calls, like, I feel like I'm on the run from my roommates. I go from room to room because they just don't know that I'm recording, man. You know, they see me talking and they're just like, yeah, I should talk out loud right now. <laughs> so I don't know, man. It's a, it's a little bit of a pet peeve, uh, a little bit of a growing pain. So they're not so business savvy then? None of them do conference calls. They do like real in-person mm. job things. I don't, I do not know if they can conceptualize what a conference call is, which is interesting because in some ways that was like a, maybe a Gen X thing to do conferences. Yeah. But I feel like it's such a millennial or, you know, Gen Z thing that we, we do video calls. So I don't know what the disconnect is, but yeah. You got any pet peeves, Craig? Oh boy, good question. I like to think that I'm, I'm a congenial guy that isn't bothered by too much, but uh, Sure, I've got some. You know, I, I've, I've made a habit of talking about buzzwords on this podcast over the years, all of the industry buzzwords uh, that kind of bug me from time to time, like a mind share, ecosystem, best of breed, some of those. But, uh, you know, I've kind of gotten over all that. I, I would say one of my biggest pet peeves is anytime I'm watching the news, you know, some bystanders going by now, everybody's got a phone, they, they're running their camera anytime they see anything. It bugs the heck out of me that they aren't savvy enough to shoot their video in landscape. You know what I mean? Because then it winds up in the news and they're shooting it portrait mode, which is vertical. And of course, they can't stretch it out on the news to where it fills the whole screen. So you see the black 
on both sides of the video. And then just like right down the middle is that thin video. I, I'm not sure why people don't have the presence of mind to turn their phone horizontal so that they can get the whole picture and it'll take up the entire TV screen in the event they make the news. What do you think about that, buddy? Absolutely. I and mean, the lack of presence of mind is absolutely absent. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just a lack of foresight. Yeah, you know, you know, as I'm thinking about it, Craig, you know what gets me? You know what's really cooked my turkey lately? Um, oh. People who use the phrase apart mm. when they're not trying to say apart. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, I really don't. I have no idea. So, like, <laughs> you could say A-P-A-R-T, right? Mm -hmm. Typically, that means removed, you know, apart from. Uh, yeah. But people yeah. really don't ever use it in that way. They usually are saying a part of mm. a space P-A-R-T. And really, you don't need to say a part of. You need to just say part of, and you would avoid saying a word that means the opposite but means exactly the same thing and it's just uh, it, it perplexes me it perplexes me i don't know if people realize it like they're 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 busting out a, a homophone that uh, could really change the meaning of a sentence <laughs> wow it's spoken like a true editor my friend the the pride i have uh, beaming right now for you is is right up there with with any other moment we've shared well you know it's a pet peeve for channel partners craig i'm sure you know Marketing is a pet uh, peeve. Yeah, that's a dreaded M word for sure. Mm -hmm. And to that point, today on the podcast, we'll be talking to one of the channel's foremost experts in the subject of marketing, Catherine Salazzo, Tech Data's new senior vice president of marketing. And we'll, oh, yeah. we'll be chatting with her uh, about her new position um, and some of the uh, insights she's bringing to, uh, to the channel. Yeah, that's going to be awesome, James. And it's worth noting, uh, you'll recall, Catherine told us that uh, we're her first big channel interview uh, in the industry. And while that shouldn't surprise anyone because of our, our growing clout in the business, it's a nice little coup for us. Looking forward to hearing what uh, Catherine has to say. She spent so many years at IBM, now over with Tech Data, and uh, we're going to hear all the things she's doing uh, with the big distributor. A juicy discussion, no yeah. doubt. And uh, after that, uh, James, we're going to be talking with David Knorr. David is a professor and an expert on strategic relationships. Uh, you know, he's got all kinds of advice that our partner audience can take, and, and vendors as well, on uh, how to build those relationships, uh, whether it be vendor-partner or partner-partner, uh, ways you can work together and, and really improve your business. So uh, some good stuff coming there from David. Also, you know, James, while we're uh, busy previewing today's segment, uh, we might as well tease the big event that everyone is looking forward to, our Channel Partners Conference and Expo Homecoming. Uh, what you got for a countdown there? Ooh, uh, just some quick math in my head. Carry the one, add the month. Uh, I would say we're about at 150 days Ooh. until we uh, touch down in Las Vegas on November 1st. And since you don't know exactly when this podcast is going to go live, I'm not going to call you on it if you didn't nail the uh, the number of days exactly. But I'm going to take it easy on you. You are kind, my friend. So, Craig, everybody I talk to, uh, you know, on conference calls lately, you know, they, they tell me, hey, we hope we can uh, see you in November. And there's just this, like, tentativeness, you mm, know. Yeah. So what, what does the public need to know about our upcoming show? Is it going to happen? Are things going to work out? 
So, you know, honestly, James, I, I think people are feeling pretty good about this whole situation now. Uh, much of the country is opening up. Hopefully we're not going to have any major setbacks. Uh, Las Vegas is getting opened up to events. Again, uh, we've got several industry conferences, in-person events happening before ours, including uh, one of the first big ones is a ConnectWise event that's coming up in June. That's an event in Florida. Uh, Tolaris uh, on the agent side is going to be having their big partner summit actually in California, in San Diego. So that's uh, more of a blue state, I guess, if you will. Uh, they're expecting that to go off without a hitch. So by the time we roll around to November, I think everyone's pretty optimistic that we're going to be in good shape for that one. Uh, I haven't really heard too much, uh, too many naysayers out there. And the other point to make is certainly maybe there will still be a few people that are hesitant, uh, tentative uh, to go, as you're talking about. Uh, we're going to have some hybrid options available for them when it comes to keynotes and so forth. So there will be some content if they're not quite ready to travel yet uh, to embrace. But so for the most part, all systems go. I'm quite confident. And if I'm quite confident, well, that's probably not a good example, but you should be <laughs> confident. <laughs> as well. So Craig, you're telling me that you, me and Ed Gately, we're we're going to be able to go around Vegas night at the Roxbury style and, and pull our old classic shenanigans. I think we, Ed, the entire channel partners, channel futures team, we're going to be everywhere. Uh, we're going to be greeting people, looking forward to seeing them, pulling all the shenanigans we can, but not to repeat a cliche, but to certainly when it comes to our team, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. In fact, I just shared with you a story offline that uh we're not going to repeat here but uh, let me tell you there's some good times ahead it was it wasn't bad i don't want people to get the wrong impression it wasn't too uh, bad not that, something we're going to share that fence didn't stand a chance <laughs> yes <laughs> that's a good way to put it good way to put it so in addition to those fun shenanigans and the networking opportunities that we have come to associate with channel partner shows you know, we're going to have an action-packed slate of content from some of your most influential peers in the channel. Put it all together, James. It's almost too good to be true. I love it. You know, Craig, you know what else is uh, too good to be true? You're just too good to be true. <laughs> uh, that you're actually on this podcast as a co-host and it's not just my bad dream that I need to wake up from? Well, that could be true. I, I'm I'm no judge over uh, your objective claims of reality. Um, but that's not what I'm going for. Okay. What is too good to be true most often is conspiracy theories. Little segue here. What I want to talk about today is conspiracy theories, which do seem too good to be true, just like the Channel Partners Homecoming Show. Well... Naturally, I'm a little concerned that we might be talking about conspiracy theories uh, on this podcast. We could uh, really go down a rabbit hole with that one, but I, <laughs> I know we'll be careful. And speaking of segues, uh, normally dumb segues, uh, we use them to promote our content, uh, not the other way around. Well, it's 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 a marketing thing, Craig. We got to subvert expectations. The content is the media. I don't know. Oh, that anyway. sounded deep, yeah. And now... Deep thoughts. Yeah. Uh, so, how does the game sound, Craig? How does it? How does a, a little trivia on conspiracy theories sounds for for a little bit of morning education, or should we say non-education sound? Uh, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you mentioned it was coming, but I I have really no idea what the category is going to be here or anything. So I'm looking forward to that coming up in our next segment. 
Okay, we can put that on the back burner for a little bit. Do we okay. want to introduce our first guest? Yes, absolutely. All right, James, we're really excited to welcome in our next guest. She is Catherine Salazzo. She is the Senior Vice President of Marketing at Tech Data. New in that position. Catherine, how are you? I'm good. You guys, I'm coming in strong at almost a full 30 days in my new role. So there you go. Like, we we wasted no time in getting you. That's how we roll here at Coffee with Craig and James. I guess so. You know it. You know it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's start off uh, talking a little bit about uh, your transition uh, from IBM. Maybe a little bit how it's a similar or different leading marketing in a giant distributor versus a traditional hardware giant like IBM. And maybe touch a little bit on your uh, plans. Uh, I know that you have described yourself as sort of a non-traditional marketer. What does that mean? Lots of questions. Hopefully you've got lots of answers. <laughs> I sure do. I sure do. Well, um, like I said, I'm I'm 30 days in here and uh, already I'm in deep learning uh, all of the things about uh, the distributor business. Uh, not totally out of my uh, my knowledge space from before as tech data was a, a very strong partner uh, to IBM. Um, but when it comes to complexity, I think uh, the distributor business is uh, is just that very intricate, um, lots of very interesting uh, relationships, uh, both with vendors as well as our ecosystem partners. Um, so I am I'm really loving it so far, uh, learning from the team and of course, uh, tech data uh, is on a very strong trajectory. So learning about all of our direction and strategy and where we're going in the future. So it's been great. You know, what's what's interesting about the the differences is, you know, IBM has um, certainly been around for well over 100 years. Uh, tech data also has a, a longstanding tenure as well. I think when it comes to um, being on the vendor side versus being on the distributor side, the vendor side, you you certainly have the ability to um, have a very strong point of view about your business and how you want that to uh, appear in the market and the value proposition. You can get very, very focused on that. On the other side, from the distributor side, you are really the steward of all of those those strengths, um, all of that messaging, creating um, that point of view in the market with our ecosystem and, of course, with their end users. So it's a very different way of approaching all of the cohorts that we serve and being really responsible for not only the tech data brand, but also making sure that we are uh, servicing all of the other cohorts that we serve. So it's definitely uh, multifaceted um, going from thinking about, you know, just the IBM value proposition to now making sure that we are doing our best to serve all of our audiences. And just dig in a little bit on your style, Catherine. You were telling us that before we started recording that you're uh, sort of a, I guess, a tech geek, if you will. Maybe a lot of marketers aren't like that. Well, I, I hope they're becoming that. You know, there's been so many different types of roles that have emerged in marketing, you know, sort of that traditional focus on event planners and, you know, campaign managers uh, is great. You need all of that to have a fully functioning online and offline marketing function. But when it comes to the future, the amount of work we have to do supporting the business and making sure we're thinking about 
a 360 degree customer experience, we are having to stretch into a lot of areas that are very reliant on data, very reliant on technology and platforms. Um, we are probably some of the, the largest consumers of technology in, in our roles today. When everything from automation platforms to uh, analytics technologies to make sure we're getting the right insights and targeting and market trends, uh, everything from sentiment analysis to uh, the way that we operate our events now offline, you know, as webinars, um, thinking about the whole marketing stack is really what makes a marketing organization efficient, automated, uh, insights driven. Uh, so it's a huge passion of mine. Uh, this will be the second um, role I have where the focus on platforms is going to be critical to our success. So yeah, I guess you could say I'm a, I'm a little bit nerdy in that space, but I think a marketing leader uh, doesn't have the luxury of not really leaning into the tools that it takes to support an organization. That's good stuff, Catherine. So when your hiring was announced, uh, they said that you are going to be overseeing um, the creation of a new integrated center of excellence tech data. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about what that is and, and what that means for partners? Sure. You know, the, the term center of excellence is an interesting one. Uh, we're kind of leaning more into, uh, you know, a marketing function. And uh, tech data has been um, extremely diligent in the way that we serve both our ecosystem partners, clients, as well as our vendors. And what has happened is we have a very federated model and what we're looking uh, to in the future is bringing the power of all of those teams, the knowledge of all those teams, uh, the experience of all of those colleagues into one organization and really looking at the work that they do and starting to um, have people work in the discipline that they um, are most well-versed in, uh, where they have the skills for. And that's where we get the power of the whole organization coming together. And um, we're going to do a lot of uh, transformation in terms of both bringing those people together, but also looking in an integrated fashion at what we need to do our roles, um, just like we were talking about on the platform side. Um, it's really exciting because uh, those business leaders that we serve, it will be a lot easier um, to get scale, especially for the growth trajectory that tech data is on. And I keep telling the team that, you know, when we say COE, for me, that is synonymous with having marketing be a growth engine for the company. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, uh, Catherine. I, I want to take a minute to uh, thank you for uh, making us your first big interview since taking your new gig. So uh, we do appreciate that. There's only one downside to that, though, is that I know you guys are in a quiet period and you can't talk much about the big merger with Synex, which is pending. But, you know, you've been part of M&A in the past uh, many times, I'm sure, during your days at IBM. What's typically marketing's role in communicating and messaging around that type of thing with partners? It's a very interesting space to be in. Uh, I personally love the transformation that comes from from moves with uh, with M and A, and marketing is is really the one who should be leading in any of those scenarios. Uh, the value proposition to the market, um, building demand, um, making a strong presence for, you know, the purpose. Why are we doing this? And that's one of the things that uh, gets me excited about transformation is we are going to help support the clarity 
in the market, um, but also making sure that when that that interest, when that opportunity comes through, that we are the engine to be able to make that into reality and and outcomes back to the business. So it's interesting. We're sort of at the the front, the middle, and and the end uh, when it comes because as we start to learn. Um, more about that opportunity that's coming from those changes, we we cycle that back in, we we close that loop to affect all of our messaging. What are we hearing in the market? We adjust our our strategy, our content, um, our programs, and be able to bring the best of what we can offer um, out through all of the vehicles that we have. So it's uh, I think marketing is critical uh, to the you know the change and the growth and the transformation that happens when you have a situation like this and um, it's certainly a testament to to tech data that um, you know marketing is uh, important and is going to help us um, as we grow. Catherine, I want to move on to talking about marketplaces. Uh, so marketplace competition is definitely heating up, and distributors like Tech Data um, all seem to have their own cloud marketplace. What is the key to setting apart a marketplace like that in this in this world where everyone seems to have a marketplace? You know, it's an interesting question because it's kind of like asking about going to the mall. You know, is this a great mall? What's really important is, is that beautiful dress that I want really in one of the stores in the mall. And uh, for me, it's it's really, yes, the, the marketplace, the functionality is important, but what's truly of value is the products, the solutions, the ability to solve customer problems. And that is the differentiator. Um, and I think tech data um, shows great strength there by being able to bring together all of these vendor solutions, these products um, that are best in class, and that will ultimately be the differentiator. Yeah, marketplaces are hot. Malls, not so much. <laughs> Malls, not so much. Although I am ready to get back in action there. I think my uh, my home shopping has uh, taken a turn for the worst. Yeah, I've got a few Amazon boxes myself uh, in the living room right about now. So we always bring this up when we uh, talk marketing, Catherine. So uh, forgive me, all you Cassies out there, but let's be honest, right? Marketing isn't always as high a priority for partners as it should be, especially those smaller shops. So mm -hmm. maybe you can suggest just two or three easy tips uh, for them that they can implement that aren't terribly difficult or time consuming, but could bring them some uh, tangible ROI. You know, I get this question so much because you're right, the the varying degrees of investment focus, um, obviously different companies are at different uh, places of growth and expansion. And uh, what I do seeing happen in the in the marketplace now is those who are born on the cloud are actually deciding very quickly uh, they cannot do their company justice unless they have a dedicated team because so much of the technologies that are delivered, um, you know, if you're leading with a SaaS uh, offering, you're not going to send somebody a, a postcard mailer, right? That would be a little bit silly because the consumers of that technology are living in a digital first world. So some of the things I recommend are, you know, first for those, uh, you know, distributors and vendors that you work with, lean on the technologies that they have invested in for you. A lot of 
companies such as Tech Data have, you know, syndication platforms, they have content, they have access to so many things, MDF funding, figure out the ways that you can easily get that presence um, out in the digital space first. Um, that can be something as simple as um, making sure that for syndicated pages within your own web environment, um, a lot of times it's just a simple piece of code, copy and paste, and there you go. You've got that catalog moving in your environment. Thinking about you know, how can you leverage things on your website to drive more organic traffic? I'm a huge supporter of SEO. Um, I love uh, the SEO world. I think it is one of the most powerful tools to be able to build uh, traffic and demand to your page by just having the right keywords or the right ranking out in search engines. You can do that with one simple hire with an SEO specialist. So there's ways you can start and think about sort of that Swiss army knife that you need in your organization. Um, you know when you find them. It's It's one of those people who... Um, has that digital first mentality. They understand how to navigate web environments, content. They have uh, an understanding of how to leverage social channels. So I really um, love to see people who are doing a mix where they can both leverage the types of programs, content tools that are available from their partners, um, but also make that first investment in-house where you have someone who can make your digital property, your website, the anchor of, of your business and where people come to find out more about you, that's critical. So if you don't have a, a modern website, um, you're already at a disadvantage. Catherine, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Lots of great informational pieces here for, for partners and, and for me and Craig as well. So really appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective. Oh, you're most welcome. I was happy to spend some time with you guys in my first 30 days here. There you go. There you go. And James, we should bring Catherine over. Uh, SEO is kind of a bane of our existence for our edit team sometimes. So we could we could use your help. Okay. <laughs> we'll talk it out. All right. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Great to catch up with Catherine there. Her first big channel interview with us. What did we do to deserve that, my friend? You know, we, we just we subverted the the con i don't know what we did craig i we're just happy to be here just happy to be <laughs> yes, here yes we're both happy to be here great to get caught up with her uh, talking about what's happening at tech data her transition from ibm uh looking forward to seeing some big things from her at tech data and uh, post merge with cenex a lot of uh, things happening over there so uh, congratulations to her and everything going on with those companies as they come together yeah absolutely it certainly was already a prominent company in the distribution space and that is that is only going to uh reinforce itself as uh, as time goes on so craig how do you feel about this game this trivia game i, I yeah. i've been teasing should, should okay. i be a little nervous I mean, yeah. you, now earlier you said something about conspiracy theories I, is that is that part of the part of the game or is it, that it it is yeah uh it'll make sense in a little bit um so you know craig lots of news with bill gates lately um oh boy you know most recently his his divorce but uh you know whenever you think of bill gates it's you know you, you think of the covid vaccine chip and him turning us into sand people or i don't know what the conspiracy about bill gates is but there's lots of conspiracies about bill gates right so that's yeah, my you're you're spending way too much time on facebook i can tell you that <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, it made me think, 
as we live in a world with such distorted perspectives on objective reality, how easy is it for me to create a viable conspiracy theory that educated, uh, rational person like you, Craig, will believe? (laughs) I want to see if I can fool you. How does that sound? Do you think you're easily fooled? Do you buy into a lot of conspiracy theories? Well, I'd I'd like to think no, but uh, it's probably more on you here as if you uh, come up with something brilliant uh, that my my mind would be tricked by. So I I assume I'm going to respond with conspiracy or not a conspiracy. Is that what we're doing here? Yeah, that's the idea. I'm going to give you five conspiracies. I'm going to give you a little uh, brief description and then a little abstract uh, of them. And, uh, you know, uh, listen to what I what, how I describe them, you know, weigh them against their own internal logic, because it's really the only thing you can weigh them against. Uh, and tell me, you know, not which conspiracy is true, but which is actually a prominent conspiracy theory that more than just me believe. Because now that I've written up these two fake conspiracy theories, they're conspiracy theories. That's kind of the point. But uh, you've got to tell me which of these two are James created. That sound fair? Okay. Okay. Did you say two of the five are ones you made up? Is that what we're saying here? Yeah. Two of the five are are Jamesian propaganda. Okay. Doesn't mean I believe in them, but, you know, honestly, the more time I spent on them, the more I thought, yeah, I I, I could believe that. I could believe that. That sounds like fun. Okay. (laughs) So conspiracy one, Craig. Avril Lavigne, the pop singer artist, mm-hmm. has been yeah. dead for the last 17 years. So theorists say that uh, before the, the death happened, Avril Lavigne, the, the Canadian pop star, mm-hmm. had hired a body double as one would in the industry when you've got paparazzi fawning over you, chasing you down. They think that Avril tragically died Mm. and actually her bodyguard just assumed her identity in a seamless handoff. Um, (laughs) Now, Avril Lavigne, or the person we think is Avril Lavigne, has denied that, saying some people think it's not the real me, which is so weird. Like, why would they even think that? Uh, which uh, the people who were interviewing her pointed out that that was not a flat-out denial. Uh, She's gone on to say that it's a dumb internet rumor and that she has flabbergasted the people bought into it. Avril's been dead since 2003. Okay. The first thing I would say is it's complicated, right? I mean, see what I did there? Um, (laughs) The Avril Levine. I wish you could make it a little bit less complicated, but... uh, uh, yes, thank you. All right. Well, here's my this one uh, sounds like, um, especially since you referenced doing research, I, I'm pretty sure that this is what I would say is a real conspiracy theory. Still a bunch of hogwash, but I would say that this is most definitely one that is out there that you personally did not make up. Sure. Well, we'll we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that in the future. OK. Oh, we're um, not going to learn. We're not going to learn immediately. We're going to oh, at the end. We're I'm gonna not letting you fun. pick up on my. Uh, on oh, my oh, oh, I see. Because then generation. I'll know, yeah. Then I'll be more likely to know which ones are. Yeah. OK. All yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's, let's do this. Conspiracy two. And please do not laugh at me, Craig. Do not laugh at me at this. Some of the most famous and influential people 
in human history were not actually human beings, but eels. Yes, eels. Craig, you've no doubt heard of an electric eel, um, which can generate two different types of electric organ discharges uh, from their bodies. Now, this is not going to be as popular a theory in North America because electric eels are native to South America, the Amazon, and the the Orinoco River, uh, which is in Venezuela and Colombia. And so this is where this theory is pretty popular. It's going to, this accusation of being an eel, an electric eel, is going to be hurled at more so, you know, prominent South American leaders that we often don't know about. Um, but the one person that we probably would both know is Hugo Chavez, the famous yeah. Venezuelan president. You're going to say these people are really, um, what's the phrase? Uh, they're they're really pulling this one here. Um, yeah, but, uh, but Hugo Chavez, we know, never took an MRI. Never took a, a magnetic resoning Im- image, whatever that, never took it. Those closest to Chavez uh, said that this is because he was terribly claustrophobic. Um, and I can understand that. I mean, we're sure we've all been inside an MRI and your hands fall asleep and it's very uncomfortable. And But uh, if you ask the Anguilidads, the Anguilidads, uh, who participate in the growing online community of eel truthers they say that chavez refused to take an mri because he knew the doctors would find a ray finned fish which is an an eel curled up around his spinal cord and while of course a powerful leader could no doubt get the doctors to stay quiet the angelidads say that an mri's magnetic radio waves could kill or at least seriously impair an electric eel so Chavez is deathly afraid of MRIs for that reason. Now, I was reading about the Anguilidads on Reddit, and obviously this happens with every conspiracy theory, but uh, the confirmation bias is so extremely high. It's so easy for them to convince themselves that they are right. Now, what really lends itself to the conspiracy theories in Venezuela is the fact that the, the press is heavily censored. So there's already this feeling that uh, truth is being held back, and it really feeds into this, uh, into this communication cycle. And perhaps one of the most notable moment was when one of these Anguilidads snuck into a Chavez press conference, and she asked, when, when, it, when she raised her hand as, as a member of the press, she asked Chavez if he would be willing to take an MRI. Now, obviously, Chavez refused, but how does that look to an Anguilidad? It looks like he's not willing to prove that he's not an eel, right? Yeah. It's kind of like when of they're talking to Obama of like, well, why don't you just pull your birth certificate out of your pocket and show us that you're from Hawaii? And it's like, oh, or why don't you just take a lie detector test right now? So I see that and I'm like, oh, this guy really is not willing to prove his humanity. So. Now, it is a South American-based theory, but they do have plenty of feelings about North Americans that we would know, especially uh, some of the more famous ones, um, often those involved in regime change. Probably the oldest one would be Benjamin Franklin, the uh, discoverer of electricity. Now, um, uh, coincidence? I think not uh, that an electric eel would discover electricity. John F. Kennedy, an eel. Uh, Ronald Reagan, an eel. Jimmy Carter, however... 
not considered an eel. But uh, overall, Angeli Dodds say that between 60 to 70 percent of U.S. presidents were and are eels. Wow. Well, that was certainly some in-depth research you did, if indeed it was research. I mean, can you call any of it research, Craig? Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm going to try and slither out of this one. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> so I credit you as being a very intuitive uh, young man, uh, maybe close to genius level. But that story was so involved. And, and honestly, if you had time to come up with that on your own, um, I, I got to wonder why you weren't producing more actual content for our websites. So <laughs> I'm actually going to go that that is a real online conspiracy theory. So two in a row, I say, are, are real conspiracy theories. Okay, do you want a? Do you want to kind of mail in those first two votes, and I'll tell you how you did? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. Okay. Tell me how I did. I'm, so I'm you think? So you, Craig Galbraith, think that both of them? Yeah. Are uh, are conspiracy theories? Well, yes. I got you on number two, buddy. I made. <laughs> <laughs> I made up the eel thing. Wow. I made it. I made it all up. Uh, I have no idea if Hugo Chavez uh, wasn't willing to take an MRI um, on Geely Dodd. That does mean eel truth. But I made that up too. Um, wow. I made a part about John F. Kennedy being an eel. You know, it took 20 minutes to write. Yeah. And I, I'm... I actually, I, I just came up with the Ever the Ever Levine thing is true. That took. I didn't have to write that one, so I, you know, I saved my time. Well, it was uh, it was thoroughly impressive. I think he got me with the Hugo Chavez thing because, you know, he was associated with some of the uh, conspiracy theories around voting machines and, and all that sort of stuff with the election. So um, maybe that wrote me in. But I think it was just the in-depth nature of number two there that uh, that got me. So so well done. Well done. Totally fair. Totally fair assumption. OK, okay. Well, let's move on and not make this a two-hour podcast. Conspiracy number three, <laughs> Obama controls the weather. The people peddling this theory say that Obama wielded a research program to change atmospheric conditions and cause Hurricane Sandy in 2012. The mm. program exists. It's called the High Frequency Active Aureole Research Program, or HARP, uh, which is a mouthful, but uh, it was established in 1993, somewhat before Obama's tenure, and uh, run by the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy. And it does some experiments uh, related to the upper atmosphere, a.k.a. the ionosphere, that is a rather important factor in the transmission of radio waves. So the U.S. does have an interest in monitoring it. But conspiracy theorists say that Obama harnessed HARP to manipulate the atmosphere using electromagnetic waves and trigger a powerful hurricane that laid waste to the eastern seaboard in 2012. Because when did this hurricane hit, Craig? Late October, just before the election. According to Infowars.com, which is a site I do not visit, but it was cited, <laughs> Obama caused the storm to create chaos through which he could strongly lead the country and consequently make himself look good to voters. Wow. Yeah, these are these are getting tough here. Um, since you got me with your ridiculous one on the eels, uh, you know, there are so many political conspiracies out there. This sounds like one that is plausible also that someone could have floated out there. Uh, so again, I'm going to say that this is a real conspiracy theory that uh, you researched and found online. You are correct, Craig. Oh. People do actually believe this stuff. Wow. 
Yeah. It's it's well, no it's no more likely than your eel story, to be honest with you. So <laughs> you, could, you could make stuff up. So, all right, all right. I feel good. I got two out of three so far. So uh, let, let's go on to the next one. So, Craig, what if I told you we're actually living in 1724? <laughs> okay. Interesting. Is that the so, end of it? Or is that <laughs> Well, no, so we're not in 1724 because we have somehow gone back in time. Hmm. Rather, this theory requires that the entire period of AD 614 to 9-11 never occurred. The gist of this is that the Pope and the Holy Roman Empire, who were in power at what we call, you know, AD 100, introduced the Anno Domini dating system and put themselves at AD 100 in order to make the common people feel like they were in power at the height of the millennium and thus make themselves look good. So they introduced history that never actually happened. Charlemagne, fake. The Carolingian dynasty, I don't know what you're talking about, Craig. The conquest of Visigothic Iberia. Yeah, yeah, that's probably fake too, Craig. So what do you think about that? Wow. Uh, this one is probably the most difficult one of them all. I should have read through your eels one as being too involved. However, I don't think you would have necessarily had time to come up with two um, crazy long conspiracy theories. And you could technically... This one sounds like one that could have come out of your brain. So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this is one that uh, you, in fact, uh, generated on your own. Now, Craig, I realize if you answer this one, you will probably know the answer for the next one. So you want me to read right. the next question, too? Yes. Go on to number five, and then uh, then I, I reserve the right to go back and change my guess. How's that sound? <laughs> okay. All right. Number five. Walt Disney's first full-length animated film was a piece of fascist propaganda. That's right, Craig. Many of us know that the filmmaking pioneer was possibly a Nazi, but for most of us, we feel safe in drawing a hard line between Disney the man and Disney the filmography. Now, you may not feel that same way when you take a closer look at the 1937 film Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Now, I'm, <laughs> now, I'm not sure if you know all the dwarves' names, Craig, but one that does stand out is Dopey, right? Because yeah. Dopey is the one that never talks. And uh, so Redditors, uh, you know, obviously going back to the Redditor well here, uh, they draw attention to the fact that Dopey wasn't actually called Dopey in pre-production. Um, they just called him the seventh. That ends up becoming a name later. I'll get to that later. But there is a, a famous scene in which Dopey, I didn't realize this, is severely beaten up by his roommates uh they, they think he's someone else and they jump on him and they beat poor dopey up poor dopey can't talk has no power and he gets beaten up the people on reddit have a sense that this is actually a metaphor for the tree of versailles in which germany was blamed for all the problems of world war one and subjugated to very rigorous sanctions that other countries did not face now, much of uh, the Third Reich uh, stemmed from this stabbed in the back mentality that many different people, these others, were responsible for these things happening. They didn't really blame people outside of Germany for the Treaty of Versailles. They blamed people 
inside of Germany. So communist, um, Jewish people, so on, so forth. But what was that called in German? That stabbed in the back theory? Dolch. Just I can't even pronounce it, Craig. Um, but but if you I don't know German, but the first two letters are the same two letters as dopey. So these people on Reddit, they are saying that Walt Disney in 1937, as the Third Reich was rising, made this scene to say, look at dopey getting beaten up unfairly by his neighbors this is what happened to Germany. It's crazy, Craig, but what do you think? Well, I went back and forth as you were telling me this story. One, because it was really long and drawn out like your eel story was. Uh, but knowing that I've heard of Walt Disney being involved in conspiracy theories before, of course, that could be a trick. You could maybe think I did know that and then just run with that story. I'm going to stick with what I went with. So number four, I'm going to say is one that you made up and that this one you're telling me here is a real, a real conspiracy theory on Reddit. How do I do? Well, I actually got you to switch, Craig. I'm sorry no. about that. Yeah, I made up the, the Walt Disney thing. I think he was a fascist, but uh, <laughs> I I made up I, I made up that the whole word wording <laughs> thing. You got inside my head because I was thinking, okay, this one's really long and he's making up German words and I'm thinking this has got to be real or this, you know, this time it has to be real, but uh, apparently not. Well, so what did I do? I got two out of five. Did you get me oh, on no, three you, out of five? You got three out of five. You got Avril Lavigne right. You got yeah. Obama and the weather right. And yeah. you got, uh, yeah, you, hmm. No, I, I think I, you oh. said four was oh. real. Well, I, I did get you. Yeah, you did. Good. <laughs> wow, you did. You're going to well, revel in that. This is like your first. We've tied in contests before, but officially, I guess this is a this is a win for you. Congratulations. Well, it's not your fault, Craig. I bamboozled you big time, and it teaches us a valuable lesson that you can make any conspiracy theory sound good with the proper amount of fake sourcing and complicated words. So don't buy into it, people. Do your research. Don't rely on just Reddit educate yourself the more you know the more you know <laughs> all right well that that was a lot of fun i gotta i gotta tell you that was uh that was a good idea you came up with so we want to set up now our next guest uh here we mentioned uh, david nor before uh in the podcast how he's an expert on relationships partnerships uh, so it makes me want to ask you as we lead into this, uh, you know, what are what are some of your favorite strategic partners in life? I guess this could be twosomes in, uh, you know, any popular culture or history or what do you got? I mean, the, the, the partnership that has always served me in life has been peanut butter and jelly. Oh. And I guess maybe that's a trio because of the bread. Um, but peanut butter and jelly have gone together so darn well. Yeah. What about yeah. you? That's a good one. Uh, yeah, I, when it comes to the food world, I like the peanut butter part, but I, I would put that with chocolate, you know, a good Reese's or, or combining a Hershey bar with some uh, peanut butter slathered on top. Mm -hmm. This is probably the first time I've ever used the word slither and slather both <laughs> in one podcast. But uh, yeah, that's that's where I'd go with that one. One of my favorite combos, partnerships. Mm -hmm. Those guys in the odd couple, they, they partnered strategically. Um, yeah. yeah, they did. Batman and Robin, you, you got to look at those guys. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, Batman probably 
looked at it more of a strategic partnership than Robin did because Robin was pretty jealous of Batman most of the time, I think. Yeah, that's fair. So uh, as you can imagine, uh, strategic partnerships are absolutely essential in the channel. It's really not an individual sport here in indirect B2B technology sales. Uh, so let's go ahead and welcome in an expert in the subject of partnering. What do you say, James? Let's do it. All right, James, my pleasure to welcome into the coffee house, David Knorr, professor, executive coach, and CEO of the Knorr Group, also author of 11 books, including the just-released Curvebenders, How Strategic Relationships Can Power Your Nonlinear Growth in the Future of Work. David, welcome to the podcast. Craig and James, good to be with you both. Yeah, so David, let, let's start off. Uh, obviously, we want to give uh, folks in the audience just a little bit about a, a bit of background on you. For those who aren't familiar with you and your company, uh, just just give us a little bit of that. Sure. So originally from Iran, I came to the U.S. in 1981 with a suitcase, 100 bucks. Didn't know anybody, didn't speak a word of English. I tell that story because several times over my career, there's been something from nothing. First, if you think of my career in, in three ways, first... Third was technology sales, IBM, Silicon Graphics, business objects, sales, sales management, kind of marketing, business development roles. Then I went to consulting uh, and after an executive MBA, president of a company and private equity route. And uh, the last 19 years, I've been on my own and I focus on helping really global leaders drive performance execution results through their strategic relationships. So, you know, most everybody, your audience knows that relationships are important. I really help them become more intentional, strategic, and quantifiable in applying that asset to getting things done, to innovating new products, new services, new go-to-market strategies. So, David, you have a, a way, a method of correlating business relationships to growth and overall business success. Sort of how do you do that? Is that is that a complicated mathematical equation? Um, what, what kind of goes into that? Not at all, James. It's a great, great question, great point. I've always believed, number one, relationships, uh, you know, I still cringe when people call them a soft skill. Uh, we, we've all figured out, A, they're not that soft. B, they're a lot more difficult than most of us can imagine. So what we do is, and I wrote about this in my first book, Relationship Economics, and I've carried that theme through now 11 books, as uh, Craig was kind enough to mention with Curvebenders. So if you think about time to cash, if you think of time to results, if you think of every facet of an organization, from strategy to the right culture to focused on channel and partner relationships, I can equate the relationships an individual, a team, or organization chooses to invest in, chooses to focus on, chooses to prioritize with the outcomes they're after. So if you can get to market in three months instead of six, that time value of money because of relationships, we believe is quantifi quantifiable and we've proven as such. If I can identify that sales or channel candidate, in a month versus six months, think of how much more productive they're going to be in that time. If I can reduce my customer acquisition cost or my channel acquisition cost or my employee acquisition cost, because I leverage relationships more intently, more strategically, then I can absolutely quantify that acquisition cost. So we tie this 
again, soft skill. We tie this nebulous idea of your portfolio of relationships to business outcomes. And I can show a definitive and a quantifiable path back from what's the value of the relationships you've chosen to invest in. Does that make sense? Does that resonate? Yeah, absolutely, David. I, I think that uh, probably folks in the channel think they're pretty good at relationship building, but uh, there are a lot of tips here uh, I'm sure that you can give them. And, and many of those, as you mentioned, uh, are in your new book, Curve Benders. Uh, James has been pretty excited to hear about this because he's been pretty much graded on a curve his entire life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Craig. Um, <laughs> So, so David, this is billed as a, a personal growth roadmap that's going to guide the reader through the complicated intersection of worth, work, life, play, and giving. So the timing of this uh, seems really perfect as we start to come out of the pandemic. I'd love it if you could highlight a couple of things from the book that maybe our channel partner audience can really take to heart. Sure. So to really understand curve vendors, it's important to take a step back. I, I refer to relationship economics my first book, Co-Create, book number 10, and Curvebenders as my Star Wars trilogy. And although any of them will stand alone, you're going to understand Luke Skywalker much better if you watch episodes four, five, and six of Star mm -hmm. Wars. So in Relationship Economics, I talk about how to turn everyday contacts into value-based relationships. More recently in Co-Create, I talk about taking those really valuable relationships and making them dramatically more strategic, dramatically creating new products, new services, new go-to-market strategies that neither one of you could have done alone. But if you develop this long-tail vested interest in its success, you'll definitively set yourself apart from everybody else. In Curve Benders, I started to really look at and really put on the lens of this idea of future of work. And as you were kind enough to mention, not just the way we work, but also as this pandemic has proven, potential disruptions to the way we work, the way we live, the way we play, and the way we give to others. Well, our research definitively and empirically points to at least 15 forces. And this pandemic is one example that will continue to disrupt us in the future of how we'll work. So to remain relevant, my supposition and over 100 executive interviews what I've outlined is you need to continue to reinvent yourself. That reinvention looks a lot more and should look a lot more like a hockey stick and less of that kind of linear truck ramp, right? Because the technology alone, much less all these other forces are going to force us to continue to learn and grow. The best path in that learning, in your growth, are a few of those strategic relationships that I call curve benders. And Craig and James, you know, they leave, they're more than just great coaches. They're more than great bosses. They leave an indelible imprint on the manager, on the leader that we become. And a really good example for your audience is think back at that one college professor. Because you took that one class, the, the impact that one professor had on the rest of your academic career. Or think of that early manager that took you under his or her wings and didn't just teach you about speeds and feeds and networks and sands and all the stuff we all know, but really how to be a servant leader, how to be a compassionate leader, how to listen louder and really embrace those that may not think like you do. So those are the relationships, again, that I'm calling curve benders because they profoundly impact not just our direction, but ultimate destination. 
That's a, a really good segue to what, what I was about to ask, which was um, if you have any examples of this sort of relationship building. For the people that we're writing for and, and speaking for, this is, tends to be relationships um, between two different organizations, from one business to another business, or from a, from a vendor to a sales partner. Um, would you have any relationship building examples um, in the business world that that we could maybe share with this audience? Unequivocally, yes. So, so think of again within the organization that boss. Think of uh, external to organization that one customer that buys more than just your products and services, buys in on your ideas, believes in you. So interestingly enough, uh, I interviewed over 100 executives and I said, in thinking about those that have had a profound impact on your journey, are there some common threads? And James, they consistently came back and said, they saw the best version of me, even when I couldn't see it myself. They saw in essence this latent value in me that I couldn't see myself. And more importantly, beyond any product or service, beyond any point in time, they pushed me to think beyond that which I thought was possible. They saw in me the right ingredients. They saw that no growth is ever going to come from a place of comfort. So I want your audience to think about, again, this isn't in the Matrix movie vernacular. There's no blue or red pill. Right when I tell when I tell people curve benders can profoundly dramatically change your life, they're like, "Where do I meet these magical mystical creatures?" And by the way, can I meet one this afternoon because I've got a really important meeting tomorrow? And and the answer is no. None of us have a crystal ball. So what you're looking for are some attributes. Who demonstrates not just talks about it inside your organization, outside of it, vendor, partner, customer. I'm indifferent because I I've also seen them come from all facets of life. But who demonstrates a vested interest in you? Who pushes you to think? Who pushes you to learn and grow? Who challenges your assumptions? Who do you leave that coffee meeting or that virtual meeting? And, and they genuinely want, you want to be a better person. You want to become a better person because of them. Those are just some of the early attributes you can identify in potential curve benders. And then I, in the book, I write a path, seven steps to kind of meeting them, engaging them, influencing them, developing a hook, a reason for them to want to interact with you in something called relational cadence. And what I've seen is people who double down on these curve benders dramatically start to see the results in how they show up and how consistently they show up. Yeah, I like that a lot, David, building relationships with people who are really going to uh, improve your work and your life. Uh, those are some great tips. And we really appreciate also the reference to the matrix, uh, seeing as we have our own Mr. Anderson, uh, James here. So that that's appreciated as well. My name is Neo. <laughs> yeah, I'll remember that. Um, so, David, just let's talk about uh, some of the things that maybe don't go well. Uh, most of us tend to learn uh, best from the things uh, when we mess them up. Uh, maybe you can offer a couple of mistakes that business people make as they're out there forming these relationships. Craig, great, great question. And the reason I originally brought up, you know, my my background from Iran is if if any of your audiences have worked abroad or or lived abroad, this comment is going to make a lot of sense. And that the rest of the world builds relationships first, from which they do business. 
I've been in this country now for almost 40 years. And as Americans or, or many Western developed countries, we're so focused on the business part that if and only if the business part works, we'll think about investing in the relationship. Hence the disconnect where we go into places and people don't look like us, sound like us or come from our backgrounds. So first and foremost, you know, it's okay. Do what makes you comfortable. As a matter of fact, I would submit that authenticity matters more than ever before. And most people are going to have a BS radar. So if you're not being authentic, authentic, they're going to see right through that. But if you lead with the relationship first, if you invest in the relationship first, it's amazing how often the outcomes you seek will come from that. Number one. Number two, sociologists tell us that an average individual can proactively manage about 100 to 150 relationships. So million dollar question for your listeners, which ones? And how do you know? And if you can't invest in everybody equally, how will you then prioritize which relationships you're going to invest in? So one of the biggest mistakes I've seen is a lot of people, when it comes to relationships, they're very myopic, right? I'm only going to, you know, I'm only going to focus on the people that are my pipeline. I'm only going to focus on things that are going to drive my deals this year. I'm only going to focus on people in my own geography and at the risk of never being invited back. Newsflash, somebody else is dating your girlfriend, right? So there are these relationships on the periphery that you're neglecting that actually could be more impactful, more profound in your business, in your growth, in where you're going. So, and a very good example, very practical one is at the onset of this pandemic, I made a list of my top 100 business relationships. And I literally went down the list and I wasn't trying to sell them anything, but I picked up the phone. And for some of your younger audience members, telephones are these antiquated things we used to use where you push the button and, <laughs> and the person picks it up. And But I'd pick up the phone, I'd call them. And it's amazing how many of them you know, picked it up because they're not traveling, they're not going to the office. And I would just ask, how are you doing? And what are you seeing? And what are you struggling with? And what are you thinking about differently? And what is really happening with you? And so what came from those was 2020 was actually beyond the lives and the livelihoods, a, a really strong year in my practice. Because I doubled down on relationships first and the business from that. Q1 was a really strong quarter. Again, relationships that I've cultivated over the years that I doubled down in through this pandemic, through this challenges of ups and downs. So, you know, again, the mistakes leading with the kind of your agenda first, uh, trying to treat everybody exactly the same. And I'm not trying to teach anybody to be manipulative, but you have to discern some relationships more strategic than others, and then really thinking about the ones you're neglecting, really thinking about the ones that could have a huge impact in your world that you're too busy to follow through with. Yeah, that is some great stuff, David. I, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, just give you a chance to uh, pitch your book, uh, Curve Benders. Where can people find that? Amazon, I would assume? Absolutely. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Target. You can also learn more about me and my work at Norgroup, N-O-U-R group.com. We've got all kinds of podcasts, blog, videos, a lot of great content. We also have a private community called the Nor Forum. And I'd love to continue this conversation with you guys and your audience. Yeah, um, you know, I really appreciate this conversation. It's got me thinking about where I can start from here personally on those relationships in business and where I can be growing, what I've been neglecting, 
what is strategic. Craig, probably got to cut you out, buddy. You might not be that strategic for me. Just kidding, Craig. I'm just kidding, man. Uh, that's bad application. No, you're um, probably right. <laughs> no, Good no, stuff, Craig, David. Craig's awesome. Again, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we hope you have a great rest of your day. It's great to be with you guys. Well, it was a great conversation with David. And, you know, I'm looking forward to kind of applying that uh, as we begin to see more and more partners as more networking opportunities, in-person networking opportunities up, um, open up for us to get together and, and talk about how we can be partnering with each other within the chat. Yeah, no doubt. And with more live in-person events happening, you're also probably going to see David on some more keynote stages uh, around uh, the technology industry. So look for him there. Uh, great advice. Uh, and I'm glad that, uh, you know, you and I can probably apply some of those things uh, to our business and our personal podcast relationship. Absolutely, Craig. I think we have some excellent synergies going right now, and I think they're only set to uh, improve further. <laughs> we can only hope. Well, without further ado, Craig, I think it's time we close. Enough right, fake news for these people. Yeah, let, let's do it. If you'd like to check out the archive of Coffee with Craig and James, you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. But of course, we encourage you to find us on where, James? Our flagship channelfutures.com. Thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to catching you again next time. Thanks, everybody. Stay woke.